Hey, welcome back to Invisible Machines, a podcast produced in partnership with UX Magazine and OneReach AI. Uh, really excited to bring just an excellent conversation to you this week with Yoav Shoam. Yoav is the co-founder of AI21. Uh, they're a major player in the LLM space, competing with the likes of OpenAI and Anthropic. And AI21 uh, actually just secured $155 million in Series C funding. So we get into that a bit. Uh, but Yoav is a leading expert in artificial intelligence and logic and game theory. He was once a principal scientist at Google. He has been in the game, as they say, for, for quite a while, uh, along with you know founding and selling numerous AI companies over the years. He's also professor emeritus at Stanford University where he taught in the computer science department for almost 30 years. This is cool. This is a really thoughtful discussion that touches on, on the many ways that our personal and working lives are going to change as AI becomes more and more intertwined in the human experience. It's an interesting talk because we, we get into some very practical matters surrounding the application of LLMs and other technologies associated with conversational AI. And then we also kind of let our brains explode a bit and go high level. And I think at one point Yoav even says we're veering into, into new age territory. So fascinating conversation, really excited to share it with you. So let's go to Yoav right now. All right, uh, Yoav, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It is it's great to see you. Yeah. Wonderful to be here. And Rob, it's a pleasure to see you as always. Yeah. I only saw you yep. 15 minutes ago. I know, but the, the pleasure is is brand new. I, I don't know agree, how that works. I agree. But week after week. Uh -huh. um, so, you have, as someone who's been writing for 25 years, uh, you know, when ChatGPT kind of blew the world's collective mind, uh, you know, questions started to bubble up about how it was going to impact the nature of writing. And, and I was listening to you speak on another podcast. It might have been about a year ago, but uh, I liked how you were talking about it, um, not just as a tool to improve people's writing. You made this great point that, you know, these these tools are actually really good at, at improving your thinking to help you better explore your thoughts and help you better express those thoughts. Uh, and, and you were talking, too, about how, you know, our thoughts are so high dimensional and nuanced in a way, like the, the way we've been communicating with letters and symbols for hundreds of years does seem inadequate. And I was wondering what, what sort of uh, leaps you're seeing towards, you know, that, that better form of communication that might be kind of lurking around the corner, I guess. Well, I, um, so you stole my best lines. I can't repeat them now. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, um, maybe uh, a way of approaching it is just looking at how professional writers uh you know what what do they have available uh it used to be the case that only they would have uh you know copy editing uh, help um and now everybody has a spell checker and a grammar corrector that's commodity and what these systems are beginning to do is sort of help you explore your space of thought because you know as you quoted me saying, uh, you know, our, 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 you know, our, our thoughts are, you know, very nuanced and high dimensional and outcomes as poor sequence of letters and 
the chance that it'll it'll capture precisely our thoughts is zero. Not and uh, and and yet, uh, if somebody told us, uh, you know, here's something else you might have wanted to say, we'll often recognize it, even if we couldn't generate in the first place. And um, you know, one. Uh, the, the, I'm not here to plug our, our company, but just to make it uh, concrete, you know, in, a, in this application, uh, you know, you can um, you'll say something, and the system isn't there to, you know, get your you know, to catch your mistake. It'll do that too, but it's more. You'll say uh, it was nice meeting you last night, and it'll suggest other things that are in the semantic neighborhood of what you might have wanted to say. So it could say things like it was lovely to mm-hmm. sight. Right. Now, it's not not always what you want to say, but sometimes the ah, this is actually much closer. Kind of thing. You'll get that side of the system from the uh, system. So I think um, uh, so. The, in that sense, yes, I think you're going to have um, people won't be replaced as communicators. I don't believe that, but I think they there will be uh, enhanced in their communication kind of the way I was describing. Yeah, that energy editor analogy is powerful. Um, I remember from when Rob and I were working on our book, like the editor is sort of this unseen force uh-huh. that really helps to shape the quality of the thinking uh, that ends up on the printed page. So that that is a good analogy. I think I think we've talked about it a lot on this podcast. That that's, I think, where we see AI doing the most good is kind yeah. of as an ally to people. Yeah, I think there's also like the, I don't know if you want to call this the other end of the spectrum, but you know to take it away from like more formal writing like creating books or things like that but just understanding that a lot of people um, resist sharing their ideas in writing on the simple premise that you know they're afraid of their grammar or their spelling or you know that formal writing in itself they're going to be criticized for the treatment versus the idea and so, so a lot of people are afraid to share their ideas um, because of, you know, the, the things we're taught in school, which is, oh, great idea, but I gave you a, a B because you spelt this wrong, right? And, and so they resist to share it in that formal way. And now we're democratizing communication in a way, giving them a voice maybe where they never had one, which is going to create more noise and it's going to create diversity in thought and we're going to hear from people that maybe we don't typically hear from and that's going to have all kinds of implications um probably more positive than negative but it it seems like a good thing that that people aren't silenced and and maybe they'll feel more heard i I don't know what your thoughts are on the sort of far end of the spectrum of not just writing a book but just just communicating and putting a post up on a thought that you otherwise would have kept to yourself or only said verbally. I really think that through, um, and I think you see it in the two extreme cases where you see it is one is people with whether it's dyslexia or you uh, know, some uh, you know limitations and uh, feel uh, liberated, and we've gotten some. Really uh, heartwarming kind of messages uh, from you know from also um, uh, educators who teach such people found it uh, a useful tool. The other thing is maybe more um, uh, everyday is uh, people for whom English is not a native language, uh-huh. and yep. uh, and they 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 feel really smart in the native tongue, 
and then really stupid in English. Uh, and and they're so they used to being perceived. Yeah, they're so used to being perceived as intelligent, and they've got to they've got to now like humble themselves, which is very hard to do. To say, oh, I'm going to look like a, you know, like like a moron. <laughs> yeah. What do you think of the role alignment sort of plays in all this? Um, in that, as we depend on these tools to help, like it liberates us on one hand, right? Um, and it, I, I think, it liberates us far more than than restrains us. But then there is that component of you know, telling you what you can talk about and not talk about because somebody's aligned the model to say this this is okay to talk about, this is not okay to talk about. Um and and now you're you're sort of being being told what to th- I think that's a that's a that's a really harsh way to say it, but but to some degree it's 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 manipulating our thoughts a little bit. Um be- because somebody's values have been applied to the model. Um, that makes sense. Yeah, uh, I think there's, there's several things at play here. One is maybe uh, um, um, the most benign version of it is that simply one would, might worry that technology would simply corral everybody around a standardized way of communicating. Not uh-huh. so much uh, because thou shall not say, you know, a certain word, just because, you know, it's everybody's, you know, king will get homogenized and, uh, you know, uh, and there'll be no room for individual expression. Um, uh, I, I actually don't worry about that so much. Um, I think... Um, there's some naive use of technology uh, where that may be the case, but good tools will actually diversify and personalize. And and so I'm not so worried about that. But um, you're also speaking about the case where in a more deliberate way, the communication will, you know, one cannot go counterculture. One cannot just because somebody's uh, value system is being imposed here, uh, either because of an ideology or for legal reasons or uh-huh. what have you. Um, well, I suppose uh, if somebody was trying to uh, write a very, um, you know, uh, blatantly avant-garde risque novel. Um, Follow the system would not allow them to do this because, for legal reasons, things would be, uh, you know, disallowed. If somebody was trying to, in a very ironic uh, way, write a racist kind of text with a clear uh, intention, even of, you know, ironic and making a point of uh, how appropriate that, that to me. So, yeah, I think that there is a danger of um, people are relying on tools that limit uh, them in certain ways. Um, people will have to control for that. I think that, yeah. that's true. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting. You said you said the word uh, counterculture, which yeah. made me think. Like, if you if you apply that word, like if you point it to the 1960s. I feel like people associate counterculture with opposition to the Vietnam War. Like there's kind of like a clear nexus of activity around that. But when you when you apply it to today, 
it becomes more murky. And I wonder if there's somewhere in here where, I mean, if you're using these tools to to expand the precision of thought in a way, but then another factor of that is also like how it will be perceived by others, like how, how it will then be digested by someone else. So it's like the machines having to lift at both ends in a sense, right? You know, at the end of the day, it's a tool. And, um, and uh, I think you will have the people who opt for convenience and accept the limitations the tools expose on them. Uh-huh. I think the I think the creatives will not. They will take this by analogy. You can take some kind of automated painting program, and naive people say, "I want a picture of a donkey in the moon," and I'll say, "Give me a picture of a donkey in the moon, and I'll get the picture and be done." The creative will use it as a disc jockey, as a, just another tool to start playing with, uh-huh. and um, so I think that we're just so we're we're humans are just so innately so creative and longing for self-expression, we'll just use them as tools and do interesting things with them. I I, I couldn't agree more, I think. We live to create. Uh, just try to stop us, right? I, it's, it's We don't think of creativity as an effort or a work, um, and we don't think of people doing our creativity for us as a convenience, you know, in most cases. It's what we want to spend our time doing, right? Ultimately, is creating and and not doing the mundane things and the repetitive things. Um, like this conversation is a form of creativity. Uh, it's not a chore per se. Um, I mean, it can be, of course, but but to me, it's not. Um, <laughs> there's this other dimension. I'm I've been really recently fascinated with, um, and that is uh, that. Uh, communication in general and technology in general has like increasingly moved us towards kind of in a lot of ways asynchronous communication you know where an idea spreads asynchronously and slowly um, versus like the COVID version where it spreads like super super fast Um, and that that technology is helping us move from more asynchronous thought to more synchronous thought, like more real time um, thinking so that somebody can, can think of something or have an idea and then share that so fast. Um, And we were recently on the podcast with uh, Gardner and they were talking about, you know, machines becoming uh, a major uh, member of the consumer market in the future. They're going to, you know, represent a, a large portion of the buyers out there and and what we're thinking there is like yeah and they're going to depend on things like relate like uh or um reputation uh online reputation to make their decisions and it we used ink as an example what ink should i reorder oh i'm going to order this is the best and cheapest as it's been rated today that company gets a million orders tomorrow a new ink comes out. That company goes to three orders. This company is now a, th- a million orders, and they, in in prior times, it would take a while for that change to happen. And now, where communication is like real time, right? And if that's happening with humans too, the implications of 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 ideas getting shared even more and more quickly um, is an interesting concept to go like is there a tipping point or is there a, a point of almost real-time communication where we're all just thinking um 
the same thoughts and in real time together. And what does that, you know, what are the implications of that? (laughs) You know, um, is there a tipping point, I guess, where, where life really changes because ideas come and go so fast? There's a lot of, a lot packed into, uh, (laughs) what you said there. Um, if I were to tease, I'd like to tease apart at least two different aspects of it. One is, uh, I never thought of it quite this way, but you know, by analogy to high-frequency trading, you uh-huh. have high-frequency communication between people. And that's one aspect. And the other uh-huh. aspect is uh, 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 endowing computers with agency, or at least uh, um, uh, uh, having computers uh, represent our agency. Uh, and uh, by virtue of that, uh, enabling a much high-frequency interaction between us, just because our computerized agents are just geared towards uh, just much higher bandwidth communication, um, I think they're both interesting. Um, in terms of the high frequency uh, between actual people, um, I think that that's a thing already now. Uh, I just see, you know, uh, I see my kids. I have young kids, and uh, the way they communicate. Is different, and you know, it's some people like to lament the fact that they have short attention span and don't have uh, patience for long form ideas. And there's probably uh, truth to that. Um, on the other hand, they communicate source information so quickly, uh-huh. uh, and they don't have patience for our slow communication. Um, and uh, so I think because there is already a pace change there in the way people communicate because. Uh, you know, good thing, bad thing, I don't know, but it's a little different. And uh, I think it's true as we relegate interaction to our computerized agent, uh, that would be yet different. Not happening yet. I don't think technology is there yet, but uh, will happen. Yeah. It seems so, so, so much of our systems are based, like sort of, in a sense, depend on, on the low speed, the slower speed, right? Um, you know, businesses winding down, learning, being able to change, having a chance to change and improve is due to the, the latency that's kind of built into the system. Um, and, and does it mean that these, these systems are going to have to change radically to adapt to, to the fact that, you know, you're not going to have time to think about this. One day you're going to have a million orders. The next day you're going to have three. Um, and and you know, and, and that I, I guess that transcends just business. Just you know, one day somebody has uh, uh, twenty friends, and this is what I think you're referring to. Um, and and in in younger people, the next day they have none because they said something that just got around uh, almost instantly, and and everybody found out about it, and and uh, and now they you know now they're on the outs um, by everyone. And it's just, um, yeah, we're evolutionarily not really wired for this fast, this fast instant, you know, synchronous uh, communication. Or or are we, you know, were we in villages before and and small groups and and we actually are wired for this and and that we're just not wired for it at scale. Um, A lot of... yeah. A lot of thoughts in there. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Um, I think we, I think by and large, um, the fact that we live in such a fast-paced environment where technology is changing very fast, but it impacts other aspects of our life that are changing fast, uh, is uh, disquieting. Uh, I think that's offset by the societal advantages that technology is bringing. Right, right. That I mean, after all, we don't all die at 40 of old age. So There's something a... good is also happening. And I think um, it's an interesting tension between the social good that technology is bringing and the the the, the tensions and the uh, challenges it brings. Um, and, uh, you know, people have written about, uh, you know, even, you know, before AI and all that, you know, social networks and, you know, the good and the bad of it, the, you know, uh, handheld uh, devices and the short attention span. Um, I think, uh, I think the biggest change will be when the boundary between us and technology will be uh, blurred. That, that, that's what happened. It's uh-huh. probably sooner than, even if Elon isn't completely right about how quickly, uh, a, a, you know, uh, brain machine interface will, will happen, it will happen. Right. And uh-huh. then, I think one of the fascinating, uh, I, I'm, I'm pivoting to something a little different, but uh, I think uh, the question is who we are as a species is a question we're going to have to contend with because uh, there were, I mean, Right now, this is already part of me, but it's uh-huh. you know physically distinct. It's made of metal, but once the, those things go away, and I communicate with the data center, you know, you know wirelessly, and uh, yeah. I have a little little machines running through my bloodstream. Um, yeah, where do I end and the machine begins? It becomes yeah. very blurry, and I think that that's actually as you know causes. You know, I think that's fascinating because it forces us to think about who we are as, you know, as people. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I think about that too. The, the, like, you know, could we reach a point where, where memories get implanted without going through your conscious brain, right? You know, where, where, you know, it, memories just end up there, you know, and, 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 and now we're talking like ultra low latency, you know, communication because, because we're 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 sort of skipping the 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 single threaded conscious, you know, and and starting to put thoughts into subconscious automatically, um, which is just yeah, it's crazy to to imagine. If uh, if I I had money to start a new company now, which I don't, um, <laughs> once contender would be a new kind of. Uh, security company uh, for when uh, the brain-machine interface gets broken down because there, the security challenge is so fundamental uh, and the stakes are so high. Um, And uh, I I think it's fascinating. And it's not a question of whether, it's just a question of when, and I don't think it's a question of that long. And, um, yeah. Yeah. I think that feels like there are uh, hurdles in place. But we we had a, a conversation recently with uh, Cassie Kuzerkov, who is the former chief uh, decision scientist at Google, and she made this point about I think she was calling them secret cyborgs, like this idea that we like using these tools, but we don't want our bosses to know about it, right? So I mean, 
that's sort of a simplification, I guess, in a sense. But like, if we're if we're talking about the the barriers between people and machines starting to dissolve, uh, it also seems like there would need to be some sort of systemic change uh, that would allow that to happen uh, cleanly. Or uh, I mean, it'll be disruptive no matter what. But but what what kind of things are standing in the way? It seems like that that could be one of them, right? The fear of I guess it's rooted in the fear of losing your job to a to a machine in some ways, but fear of losing your 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 job to machine, uh, you, you know, could be even before you, we dissolve the boundaries. Uh, you know, uh, this is a story of automation. Uh, you know, we no longer have a uh, need for human, you know, copy editors. Um, and so there's, you know, more and more jobs that I think more jobs actually will change in nature than will disappear. Historically, yeah, there's did. a lot of discussion about the impact of AI on the job market and how, you know, two, two, two million track drivers are going to lose their job and so on. Um, so um, I think more like uh, historically, technology has created, always created more jobs than uh, that destroyed uh, and jobs uh, we can't even articulate now. But I think it's true that, uh, first of all, the short-term disruption that nothing to sneeze at, but also, job, so the famous quote is that, you know, uh, AI won't replace uh, doctors, but doctors who use AI will replace doctors who don't. And I think it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a statement true for many professions. Um, and so I think my fear of losing my job or my the way I do my job now not being adequate going forward uh, I think it's a it's a it's a good a valid thing to, to think about uh, even before we dissolve the boundary between us and machine um, when that boundary is dissolved the question is I mean uh, so I'm hooking to this giant data center and I uh, and I do an amazingly good job uh, and I get a bonus uh, who gets the bonus I or the data <laughs> Yeah, and I suppose for every copy editor who's who's displaced, there there will be a copy editor who realizes they can use these tools to now become like a higher level editor and take on more clients at scale. So there's that side yeah. of it as well. Yeah, and and yeah, bonuses are feedbacks and and feedback of I guess you could say encouragement. So whoever needs the encouragement, you know. <laughs> Whoever, whoever needs the the reward uh, for the behavior should get the bonus. Um, it's it's all about uh, feedback, I guess. Whether you're human or a machine in in this deep learning world, it's positive reinforcement, you know. Uh, and if you positively reinforce the wrong behavior, you're going to get the wrong more of that wrong behavior, um, which makes sense. Uh, this is. Um, Interesting. As I, I can't help but think like so. A lot of people I talk to, they sort of, uh, they see something really big happen with LLMs. They, I think, in their gut, they perceive like something in this world has changed in the way we know it. It's really big. But then when they boil it down for what they can tangibly see, it, it really kind of ends up being like it changed the way that they do research they write um and 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 possibly read right um 
as a solution itself, right? If you just say the LLM as a solution, as a as a tool by itself, that that's really the biggest impact that that they can perceive. Um, I do believe that the implications are greater than that at from a systemics change standpoint, but from a point solution standpoint, that's fundamentally um, where where that as a single point solution by itself, um, it's changed. And so I think we're seeing like a decline in in usage because it just comes down to how much reading and writing do you do in your job? Well, if not very much, then this isn't going to have a huge impact at the moment um, on your job. And if your company doesn't have a lot of employees that read and write, then it's not going to have a huge impact on the job. But I think where you were going is bigger than that. It's more about improving communication between people, not just like this one professional aspect of reading and writing, you know, where it's, it's formal reading and writing, but more informal communication. Um, is that true? Did I, did I perceive that correctly? Um, I think it's both. Uh, I definitely think that uh, technology uh, is impacting the way we communicate will continue to impact it. But I also think in the single use case of how we interact with information, how we write, how we, how we, can, how we produce information, how we consume information, um, uh, is really uh, being, I this in the type term, disrupted uh, in a significant way. Um, I think, you know, just 80% of the uh, information in the enterprise is tech. Um, there's no human who can read this amount of tech in the enterprise. And yet there are many people who could do their job better if there were, uh, if that information, the relevant information there was available to them. Uh, executives, managers, uh, everybody, you know, customer support. And yeah, so... Uh, so I think actually um, uh, the majority of people in the enterprise stand to benefit from the technology. I think the biggest uh, um, barrier right now is the um, unreliability and immaturity of the technology because it is wonderful, and you know uh, I wouldn't be in this business if I didn't think it you know it was great stuff. But we have to realize that. Uh, these uh, big language models and, you know, as you know, these are basically the statistical machines uh, uh-huh. that do uh, autocomplete on steroids, right. but that's what they do. Um, uh-huh. I-, I saw a funny cartoon recently of, you know, these slaves walking in a kind of a mine with huge boulders on their backs and their masters with whips standing over them, but all the masters are robots and one slave saying to another, and to think this all started when we taught them autocomplete. Uh, so, but, <laughs> but fundamentally, that's what they do. Now, on the one end, it's amazing uh, how, how, how this autocomplete on steroids, what it accomplishes, and, it, um, and it's not just like these systems of big databases that memorize things and strip them out of you, because they are in these databases, but they take this very high-dimensional information that they were trained on um you know basically everything you know borges's universal library everything that ever been written and they project it down to 
even though the you know our biggest model is you know 175 billion parameters, that's a large number. It's still tiny compared to the amount of information that the model was fed. So they are forced to abstract and create internal representation, and that's that lead to very you know often miraculous behaviors. Uh, having right. said all of that, it's a black box that occasionally does amazing things and sometimes does totally stupid stuff. And the biggest hurdle is that, that you don't have a, uh, a complete faith in what the machine will do and how it'll do it. And you totally enjoy the miracle when they occur, but, and it's okay for homework, but for work work, if That's you're right. about to, uh, uh, write to your boss or to your private client, um, you know, you you you, oh, you that you, you had some flaws there, and I think the <laughs> biggest. Uh, so I think, in fact, the potential gain in the enterprise, you know, along just your know, reading and writing or consuming and producing information, is huge. But that's an area where we need to see qualitative uh, advances to unlock that potential. Uh, yeah, you just said something um, that unlocked an idea for me, which was. 80% of enterprises data is in text form. Um, and it makes me kind of go to the, you know, uh, another lens, which is what percentage of data in a company is, is conversational based, like non unstructured data. Right. And, and saying like, what if, what does it look like if a company has access to that data and um, from a decision-making standpoint, right? Um, what does that look like? You know, when, when they, they maybe are collecting, you know, 1% of the data that exists and is available, what happens when that tips over and they're collecting most of the data and, and, and able to synthesize that, which I think you're saying the LLMs, this is what they can do well if you can trust them, right? So it's, it's wow, amazing. It can synthesize data I could, like I as a human couldn't synthesize and it can do it in real time so long as I can trust that it's synthesizing it accurately. Um, it's a fascinating idea to go, what does a company look like that that has access to all that conversational information and can synthesize it into into usable chunks for humans to make better decisions. Um, and I guess that comes down to like, what does synthesizing conversations look like? You know, like extracting the relevant data and and then what does it look like to feed that to, you know, folks, decision makers? You know, is it is it something that's like happening in real time in their ear as <laughs> they're walking around? Is it, you know, is it something that I guess it, I don't know. My thought is like it's it's not a dashboard or a report anymore in our BI system. It's 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 got to be more real time, right? Uh, I think it's it's uh, it's both, um, and it's it's exa exactly that. You know, um, most of the enterprise data is unstructured data. There is a lot of structured data, numbers and tables, and so on, but um, most of it is just text, whether it's, you know, salespeople uploading stuff into CRM or 
uh, transcriptions of sales calls and uh, you yeah. name it. You know, HR kind of uh, typed, uh, you know, uh, comments and so on. Uh, so not to mention, you know, you know, patient records, you know, that are, you know, just text and so on. So, um, and most of that is hard to, to act upon exactly because nobody can read it. Because right. especially what does it mean to either synthesize or glean insight from it? And I think there'll be real time. There are systems that today even, they're just fractions of shirtless, but they're already, you know, multi-billion dollar companies who will uh, transcribe sales calls and in real time give you, uh, uh, you know, hints uh, about, you know, uh, what topics to bring up and what words to use and not use. And certainly there's also post-mortem, um, okay, here's what happened in the sales call and, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, uh, analysis of what went well and what didn't go what as well and uh, sometimes aggregate, uh, 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 you know, uh, among all the salespeople and, you know, except from that spit fact scene, you know, Here's how these salespeople handle this call, and here, here's what you know deals converted to a you know a, an actual transaction which didn't, and out of that extract some uh, some insight. And so I think it's both real time and uh, you know offline. Uh, it's just such rich information you can do yeah. a lot of things with it. Yeah, I mean that's kind of where I I go with it is like. If you if you think of data as new oil and you go, well, you know, there's all this data that is uncovered, like where it's a fraction of the data that, that companies are accessing because most of it's unstructured in the form of conversations that are happening, you know, over the phone, like you said, customers between employees on in Zoom calls on meetings or whatever you're using. Um, and you go, okay, great. So, so yeah, it's, there's a, there's a lot of work in making use of it that we've been just discarding it right we've just been throwing it away it's like the it's it's like the it's almost like the cream of wheat story right we've just been 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 throwing it away and and i've talked to many companies who won't even foot the bill for transcribing because that's too expensive right um and my thought is always like that's gold like you're just throwing away you're throwing away like valuable data um just because you're you know you're looking at the transcription bill and you're probably valuing it on your inability at the moment to extract valuable insights but if you can trust that you'll be able to do that you know and that you need to collect the oil you'll be able to refine it don't worry about that um you kind of get into this idea that 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 it kind of circles back to the beginning of this conversation that maybe this real-time uh you know information synchronous synchronous synchronizing people and thoughts more quickly and machines and people and thoughts more quickly benefit a company more than it benefits us socially, right? Um, that a company, since it's so productivity oriented, that as they drive to more real-time thought and better coordination of ideas, that they actually benefit most and, and, that, and that a lot of that gold is in, is, is in that unstructured data. Right. Um, Think who will accrue the most value from technology uh, in general and AI in particular uh, being unleashed on the data available is an interesting question. Uh, will it be businesses or you know individuals? 
if businesses will it be small businesses or the large corporations will uh, you know corner uh, most of the value here uh, uh, I think that's a good question I think uh, one of the things worth mentioning about it uh, worth thinking about as we think about this AI future is um, exactly uh, how to um, make sure the value is a port, you know distributed in a in a socially beneficial way uh-huh. Earlier, we were we were talking about the idea of uh, you know the the line between a person and technology starting to blur, and I, I wonder in what we've been talking about now if if a business might actually be a kind of a crude model of that in a sense, like you have all this information locked away in unstructured data, the way that we have many secrets perhaps locked away in our brains. So we're going to start digging through that, establishing relationships, and then send technology coursing kind of through the veins of an organization to departments that haven't had blood in years, right? And and start perhaps healing things and unifying things. I wonder if that might provide uh, instructive and cautionary lessons in terms of how we start to integrate technology on a more personal level. I wasn't sure if you are, uh, you're primarily focusing on uh, a new way of thinking how technology impacts uh, permeates the organization or looking at how it impacts us as people by looking at the organization as a metaphor. Um, I think they're both interesting. Both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, the we we talked. To, I mean, the, with a business too. Probably before it happens to people, the the edge between business and technology will start to dissolve. Where maybe all that a brand is is just its reputation and the tenor of its chatbot. You know, like <laughs> what what else? What other identifying marks does it have? Um. <laughs> Right. Um, well, the issue of identity is interesting. I mean, we uh, we have this uh, illusion that we have a real identity, we people, whereas a corporation, it's a made-up identity that some you know brand uh, department or brand agency made up, but it's just, just an artificial thing, and it's really a whole bunch of uh, different people and you know in different positions, um, and uh, and the truth is that uh, you know we're no different. We have this illusion of the unified self, but we really are the fragmentation of different uh, pieces of us. And uh, you know I'm a very bad Buddhist, but uh, my friends who are better Buddhists will tell you, well, that's kind of obviously true, right? This illusion of the self. And I think your analogy to uh, the uh, the uh, distributor organization, and that we are really a distributor organization ourselves. But you know, our in denial is probably true. And thinking about how uh, information flow in the organization is going to change that nature, it can also um, you know we can apply it to ourselves in 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 a certain way. Yeah, it seems like there could be almost like a a, a different type of singularity where it's not necessarily machines becoming self-aware but some sort of synchronicity between human thought and machine communication or machine thought and and maybe there's like this more simultaneous union of people and machines that's pretty pretty far out there <laughs> yeah we're getting a little new agey here aren't we <laughs> yeah yeah i guess we are yeah. this is the outer limits of this podcast <laughs> 
Uh, yes. I'm gonna be uh, I'm gonna be ostracized if any of my colleagues hear this. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! <laughs> well, we can throw him a bone. I mean, uh, AI Twenty One Labs. You you guys recently secured a, a pretty significant round of funding. Um, where 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 do you see that funding carrying you? Like, what what are the the places you're interested in? The less interesting answer to that is. You know, we are spending a whole bunch of money on training models, and we'll do more of that. And, you know, we're growing as a company. We're 30 people now, and we'll be, you know, 100 more, you know, within less than a year. So uh, I think the uh, maybe more interesting answer is um, what we aspire to. And, um, and, this goes back to why we started the company. We uh, we really believe that the uh, emphasis on statistical machinery, you know, deep learning, and, and what came to be known as, uh, as you know, large language models, uh, is well warranted because it's amazing what they do. But as I said, they're also inherently limited, and we really believe in uh, the combination of. Uh, more explicit reasoning with this more visceral, statistical, uh, creative information uh, uh, retrieval and mashup that the neural nets do. And so um, really uh, this uh, this was the reason we started the company. And um, sometimes people refer to the neurosymbolic approach, the, both the neural nets and the symbolic reasoning. And um, and so I hope that we can, uh, you know, both ourselves and with our partners, kind of uh, take this to the next level and uh, uh, really have uh, machines that are deserve to be called intelligent, uh, because I don't think they are right now. Anyway. And that's a lot about the 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 the, the you know hallucinations, the mistakes, the like. The, the boundaries when it goes outside and its awareness of its boundaries. All right. So I think you're right. There are manifestations for the inherent limitation. Hallucination. I'm not crazy about the term, but I'll pick my battles. I, I, uh, I like to call it confabulation, maybe a better term, but just making up Don't stuff. That, you know, my favorite example is I, uh, I, I asked, well, it had to be ChatGPT, but it's not enough on them. It's true for our systems also. Uh, I asked him, you know, who wrote this particular book? And it gave me an incredibly clear and lucid answer about who the author were, was and the and the publisher and uh, the background of the author and the content of the book. And, um, and it, none of this was true, and I know it because I wrote that book. And um, <laughs> and uh, uh, and so that's an example of you know and then reasoning you know there's basic math mistakes the systems make which shows that even though they show flashes of brilliance it's interspersed with total garbage and mm-hmm. I um, um, I recently gave a talk and I'm about to finish uh, writing a little paper on it uh, which I titled Understanding Understanding. Um, these machines don't really understand. Now, I think those people, I'm not the first to, 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 to be saying this. Several, you know, very smart people have said this. Uh, I just didn't, I, I haven't seen a good argument for why, even though the conclusion I tend to agree with 
the arguments I found to be weak. And I think fundamentally, uh, when we understand something, um, first of all, uh, it means that uh, we're never ridiculous. Uh, you say we understand mathematics. doesn't mean we can answer okay. every question in mathematics uh, or even arithmetic. But there's certain several things we'll never say. If I, you know, if you claim that one plus one equals three, uh, I don't care how well you answer other, you know, arithmetic questions. You do not understand something fundamentally is wrong. Or even if you I say, uh, I, so one thing these systems aren't good at is saying I don't know. Uh, but right. um, and I think the important part of understanding is saying you know, knowing what you don't know. But certain things you, you can't not know. You can't not know how much one plus one is. And so uh-huh. these basic uh-huh. uh, ideas of, uh, you know, that display understanding something that I don't think people have grappled with before. And it's also uh, related to the notion of an explanation. When you, you know, when you're in school, you know, we're used to, uh, you know, questions uh, ending with explain your answer. And, and why uh-huh. is that? Well, you know, when you think about it, it's fundamentally because we want to make sure you didn't just memorize it and you could have answered a great number of other questions we, we would have asked you correctly. So this is like an exemplar. You know, you answer this, but now when you tell me how you answered it, I have the confidence they could have answered lots of other questions, uh, you know, robustly. And um, and systems don't, can't do this right now. And okay. so I think this is what we're after, getting this robustness that's based on deep principles that display real understanding. Yeah, and it seems like there's two perspectives. There's Because you pointed out, like, there's there's the idea that it it it's said with 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 a degree a high degree of certainty who wrote the book which um it, it could have it provided the wrong answer um but with a high degree of uncertainty so in the way it worded it it could say i really don't know but my best guess is blah 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 and what we have now is the wrong information but but spoken with you know, a correct level of certainty that humans would. And that kind of brings us to an old conversation we had, which I, I still carry around with me, which is what he said about self-driving cars. He said, you know, humans, when evaluating these machines, tend to um, be more comfortable if they make mistakes in the same way humans do. But when these machines make mistakes in ways that humans don't, that's what makes us most uncomfortable because they become less predictable. And so... Um, as long as it doesn't know and then and then makes that mistake in a way that's more human-like, we might tolerate it better. But the fact that it makes mistakes in ways that, that are unfamiliar to us, um, it kind of throws us off. So it's sort of like the fourth wall. You're in the zone. You think you're, you know how to communicate with this. You think you've, you've got something going and then it surprises you by making a mistake in a way you hadn't expected. And then that just throws off the relationship um, and your trust significantly. So is it a case of being more uncertain um, or at least communicating certainty in grays instead of black and white, and then also trying to align these machines so they make mistakes more like we do? And then also 
not making mistakes, right? Because <laughs> is that a, is that an option so, that they just don't make mistakes? Um, well, first of all, I agree with everything you said. Uh, you know, we make mistakes. It's okay for people to make mistakes, but uh, the certain kind of mistake that is not okay for it's for them to make. And um, and I also agree with you when they make mistakes. Just as when they write, we better have a sense for why they they were they they were, and so yeah, this um, there's there's no humility in the system right now, uh, and um, and we really want to have smart, uh, you know, uh, but uh, humble uh, system mm-hmm. that. Um, and you know, there's uh, uh, I his name, Werman guy who's involved today. Has a book actually also oh, called Richard uh, Saul Werman. Yeah, yes, we exactly. actually had him on. So um, the reason I uh, so uh, my this, this thing I'm writing is called Understanding Understanding. He has a book by the same title, um, uh, and, <laughs> and it has almost nothing to do with with I'm talk- what I'm talking about except this one quote. Uh, which had, you know, you know, uh, true knowledge means uh, realizing when you don't know something, uh, and uh, uh, true understanding is. Yeah. Uh, I think that's mm, really that's true and pr- profound. Yeah, but it does feel like we're we're at a moment where there are technologies that are converging that that can bring about, you know, I think greater levels of context, deeper understanding, and then maybe it is like. I, I, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, but everywhere you shine a flashlight in this space, like you find that the root problem seems to be humans, not the machines. Like it's like a machine on its own is not nearly as terrifying as a human with a machine. Um, so, so maybe that dynamic needs to shift as well, right? Like it's it's the humans that are going to teach the machines humility. They're they're probably not going to figure that out on their own, right? Um. I don't find it really terrifying. I just find them sometimes wonderful, sometimes frustrating. Um, Not really. Uh, um, it's certainly the case that the uh, uh, interaction between the person and the machine, uh, even before the boundary has been blurred, um, is is key. I, I agree with that. Um, um, I, I speak about so people speak about product market fit, right? The uh, when a certain product has actually, uh, you know, made, uh, made good contact with a, a you know, a, a need in the in the marketplace, uh, but I speak I about product uh, about a product algo fit, uh, product algorithm fit, and what I mean by uh, that is that algorithms are good to certain things and not at others, and certainly the uh, statistical uh, algorithms we ha- have. Uh, you know, I have limitations, and you, as a somebody who's crafting a product or an experience, your job is to understand what the strengths and weaknesses of the algorithm are, and to craft a product around it, so that you uh, compensate for the limitations, and in particular, craft the right division of labor between the person and the machine, and that yeah. product algo algo. And so, I totally agree that that. A key component. Um, um, I still think that um, these AI systems need to have humility built into them, not just a matter of uh-huh. you know the person 
uh, you know, beating it overhead, over the head, uh, saying, uh, you know, uh, I, you know, you did a bad job. I'm going to disregard you. I think they should do less of a bad job in the first place. Yeah. And in some ways you could say the humility might be fed by the, you know, the sort of cultural nature of companies lacking humility, you know, not wanting to show vulnerability and now they got to put it in their product, you know, so, you know, I, what, what if the product is less sure, does that reflect badly on, on the company and, and what they created and, and them getting, coming to grips with, with that? Um, it's kind of an interesting, interesting idea. Um, but what you said about algorithms, I think makes a lot of sense to me. I, I think about fractals, um, in this new world, which is simple algorithms, but at scale have this emergent complexity that's really hard for the creators to have predicted or imagined. And they're sort of, uh, this emergent complexity is, is really difficult to get your arms around into. Um, do you guys think about how, like, what is the new system for managing emergent complexity? Is there a new way that we need to think about that. Yeah, uh, but first of all, you know, um, software has is maybe the most complex artifact uh, you know humanity has built, and um, uh, it's always had these emergent uh, phenomena, uh, unanticipated by the programmer. We call them bugs. You know this uh, day of large-scale, you know, statistical machines is that the unanticipated behaviors include very positive kind of behaviors, right. not just bug. And uh, that's not a bug; that's a feature. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And um, and so I think that a lot of the effort uh, that you'll see, you see now, and you see more of, is trying to iron out or at least control for the uh, uh, these uh, unpredictable, uncontrollable, uh, black boss kind of after these uh, machines. And I think um, part of it is the product algo just crafting the experience to compensate for those limitations. But part of it is also, you know, reducing those negative uh, phenomena. And uh, I think the jury's out on which set of techniques will be most impactful. So I, by and large, divide it into more of the same and and not. More of the same meaning larger models, uh, more training data, uh, mm-hmm. more recent, you know, larger, what's called larger context windows, uh, now retrieval augmented kind of, um, uh, you know, sort of scheme where you know, at entrance time, the language models somewhat cleverly guesses what type, what, what information might be most relevant to the user query, and kind of stick it in the context and bias the answer based on that. And so uh, there was that kind of camp of more of the same. And I, I think they're all okay. valuable techniques, and uh, you know we're doing it, and everybody. But I think a more fundamental change will be bringing this is my personal bit. Uh, will bring a bigger kind of. Uh, control over the system and that's the neurosymbolic approach where you actually uh, for 
certain aspects of these AI systems. You actually have algorithms that you coded, that you know what they do, you can reason about them, you can prove guarantees, and uh-huh. they are intermixed with these more statistical, less predictable uh, kind of systems. I think that's this neurosymbolic future, I think, is part of the answer to how you'll get more reliable, predictable um, machines. That makes sense. Do you think we're going to see more progress being made from um, sort of the A side of the equation, which is like what we feed the systems, like better processing of the data before it goes in, or the sort of post-processing side, which is the alignment and the other side of 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 sort of trying to tame the beast? Because um, I, I feel like that the A side gets less talked about you know, if you feed hate speech in, you're going to get hate speech out. Can you remove that? If there's a marketplace for data where people are spending and investing on cleaner data sets because uh, they're selling it, it's not just free. Um, you know, is that is, is that going to move us in, in, a, in a better direction? Or where do you think the effort is best spent? Honestly, it's both. Uh, I think, um, I, I think there's... Um, um, there's a lot of value in uh, cleaning up existing uh, data sources uh, and accessing new ones. Um, at some point, you'll you'll have exhausted all of human, uh, you know, ticks uh, to uh-huh. uh, to train on. But uh, there's still much more ticks that has not been uh, made available. Um, and so, but at, at the same time. This post-processing, editing, filtering uh, will always have a role. And by the way, it's not only before the after, it's older than the middle. That's really important. As you're training the system, yeah. during training, uh, and as you're passing them through these reasoning funnels that include not only language models, but also explicit you know, algorithms, there's a lot of, uh, uh, of the action be there. So I don't think it's only one place. Got it. I guess we can summarize and just say that the opportunity is huge. There's still a, a lot of room for improvement on all all sides, I guess, and that's optimistic, right? We're just at the beginning. This dovetails nicely because I, you have you said something a minute ago that that struck me as really important. Uh, you were mentioning like designing around strengths and weaknesses. Uh, we had a great conversation with Aveta Sampson, who's the director of UX and machine learning at Google. And she made, I think, the point that she likes to challenge her design teams specifically to design around the weaknesses of a, of a piece of technology instead of the strength. I think maybe our our compulsion maybe seems to be to focus on the strengths and the capabilities, but I think it's equally important, especially with this technology, to really be well aware of the limitations and the weaknesses. Well said. Yeah. Well, this is... All this right. was a great conversation. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I actually am surprised at how much we covered, <laughs> both <laughs> both practical and new agey. <laughs> um, yeah, this, this was, was a great. nice journey. Thank you, guys. I enjoyed it. Appreciate really appreciate, appreciate your time, you Yoav. taking the time with us is is great and indulging us. Hey, thanks again for tuning in to Invisible Machines. Don't forget to follow Invisible Machines wherever you get your podcasts so that you can hear new episodes as soon as they drop. 
You can also watch this podcast on the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. Thank you so much to everyone who listens to this podcast and especially to those of you who leave comments because we've received a lot of really useful commentary that has helped us shape this podcast as we move forward with it. Thank you as always to our producers, Elias Parker, Kate Timchenko, and our video editor, Michael Litvinov for making this podcast look and sound wonderful. We look forward to catching up with you again next week right here on Invisible Machines. Mm-hmm.